Today's passage comes from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 8. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, but there is another thing that you have to know about me. Uh, I'm not as much like this anymore, uh, but when I was younger, uh, I was always the kind of person that liked to have my life planned out. And I don't know if some of you are like this, but for most of my life, Everything went according to plan. So I went to college. Um, after I graduated, I lived overseas as a missionary for a couple years, traveled the world, uh, moved to Southern California, went to seminary, was surfing like every month. Um, my, my, one of my roommates was a pro poker player. We would go to Vegas like every month. Um, every, like, Everything was great, and everything was going according to plan until I hit the age of 30. And I looked over my shoulders at my peers and friends who were getting married and having kids and were successful with their careers. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, what the heck am I doing with my life? And it sent me down like this hole that I felt like I couldn't get out of uh, for almost two and a half years. And so I did what a lot of people do when they don't know what they're doing. I got my motorcycle permit, and I started getting lessons on how to ride a bike. And I did another thing that a lot of people do, young people do when they don't know what to do next. I went back to school yet again for another degree. And during that time, I was doing random stuff like mopping the floor for my friend's dad's warehouse after Hurricane Sandy. Oftentimes in this large warehouse, much bigger than this, mopping the floor by myself. I was a cashier at a car wash for my friend's car wash, and I was awful. Tuesdays were Senior Citizen Day, where they get discounts. I offended so many people by giving them a discount when they didn't deserve one. I was a sports journalist for Bleacher Report, writing about the NBA, because that's one of the few skill sets that I had. But if I could give you an image of what my life felt like, it didn't feel like this linear line. It sort of felt like just like a random line of chaos and I didn't exactly know where I was going. Suffice it to say, I, I think if there is a word that I could use for the way that I felt was, it, it sort of felt like a crisis. 
And at that time, I was maybe too young for a midlife crisis, but it certainly felt like a quarter-life crisis. Um, and maybe some of you right now can empathize with how I felt. Maybe you're 30, and you're like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? Like, career-wise, like, what am I doing? Maybe you're pushing 40, and while all of your friends are getting married and having kids, this is the one thing that seems so elusive to you. Maybe you're like some of my friends that are in their 50s now, and they've been doing ministry their whole life, and for the first time in their life, they're thinking, do I still want to do this? But what else am I supposed to do? Because I don't have any other skill sets, supposedly. And they are now experiencing not a midlife crisis, but a three-quarter life crisis. Can you relate to that? That existential angst that you feel when you have no idea what you are doing with your life? If you do, and all of us will at one point or another, uh, the good news is you're definitely not alone. But the even better news is that you don't have to feel stuck like you're in this crisis. But I think that the key to stepping out of your crisis, if you're experiencing one, is to step into your calling. Can I just say that one more time? I think that the key to stepping out of your quarter-life crisis, mid-life crisis, three-quarter-life crisis, is to step in to your calling. Now, the word calling, particularly if you've grown up in the church, has been misapplied so many times. And so in many ways, we have to demythologize what we mean by calling. So take a look with me um, at verse 1 again on your phones. And this is what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian church. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay. The theologian and missiologist Oz Guinness, fun fact, his uh, great-grandparents or grandparents were actually the founders of Guinness Beer. He is a theologian, a brilliant theologian. And in his book, The Call, Oz Guinness talks about two types of call. So important to know. The first is our primary call. The second is our secondary call. Both callings are very important. However, we have to hold both callings in the right order. The primary call is called primary because it's supposed to come first. The secondary calling is not unimportant. It is important, but it does have to come second. Now, what's the difference? The primary calling, our primary calling is to follow Jesus and to reflect him, especially as disciples of Jesus. So to follow and reflect him. Our secondary calling is not a call to a particular person so much as it is a call to a particular thing. So it could be to a type of job, moving to a new city, adopting a kind of certain lifestyle, being passionate about a particular issue. It's a call to, be to a certain particular thing. Okay, and I'll give you an example of this. If, if you have a Bible app, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1 and 2, and um, I think this is the uh, NIV version, okay? 
1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2, and here we see two examples of the word calling. We'll see the primary calling and secondary calling, okay? So 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 2, it says this, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ, secondary calling. He's called to a particular thing. He's called to be an apostle. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, primary calling. So in these two verses, we see secondary calling, Paul's call to be an apostle, but then we also see our primary calling, which is to reflect Jesus, to be a holy people. Now, when we hear the word calling, typically the only thing that we think about is our secondary calling, because what we do in our culture is more important than who we are, right? This is why when we meet one another for the first time, we say things like, oh, what do you do for a living? But what's fascinating is that the word calling in the New Testament appears 51 times. And 49, approximately 49 out of the 51 times the word calling is used, it is not in reference to our secondary calling, but it it is in reference to our primary calling. Only two times is it in reference to our second, secondary calling, which is found, one of which is found right here in 1 Corinthians 1. And the reason why that's so significant, that our primary calling is mentioned far more than our secondary calling, is because in, from God's perspective, who we are becoming matters far, far more than what we are doing. Now, in our culture, what we are doing matters far more than who you are becoming. But in God's eyes, the secondary calling can never eclipse our primary calling. And I'll give you an example of that. So read with me verse 1 and 2 in Ephesians 4 again. Paul says to the Ephesian church, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So the fact that he talks about our character, how we walk, again, demonstrates that God cares far more about who you are becoming than what you are doing. Not to say that what you do doesn't matter, it does. But what's primary is us following him and reflecting him. This past week was um, Tim Keller's memorial service, the late Tim Keller. And if you don't know who he is, um, Tim Keller was a titan, like a tour de force. Um, New York Times bestselling author, um, started multiple organizations, planted thousands of churches, uh, was voted one of the best, 50 best leaders, not pastors, leaders, most influential leaders in the world, had the ears of presidents like crazy, like colossal in terms of his accomplishments. And what was fascinating to me as I was watching the memorial service is that not one person that came up here and spoke about Tim Keller said anything about what he did. Every person that came up here to talk about his life talked about who he was as a father, a husband, a pastor, a friend, and to many of us, a mentor. 
from God's perspective, who you are becoming matters more than what you are doing. And I say that because we get it reversed, and when we get it reversed, what ends up happening is that it crushes us, and it forces us to step into a crisis where we don't know what we're doing yet. And when we're operating in this performance mode of accomplishing a lot in life, two things happen. If you don't do a lot, you don't accomplish a lot, it's gonna crush you. If success eludes you, it's going to crush you. Uh, Tim actually told this story once, I remember, where he was talking with someone at his church, and she was like, what does it matter if Jesus loves me if that guy over there I have a crush on doesn't love me? Like, who cares if Jesus loves me? What matters more is that I get married. And what she was saying there is that my secondary calling to get married matters far more to me than what Jesus has done for me, right? But talk to anyone that's married. Talk to anyone that's married, and they will tell you that your, your spouse, your kids, they cannot fulfill this Grand Canyon-sized hold that is in your heart, right? My wife and my kids complete me, but they do not make me whole. Christ is in me. And only he can fill this grand canyon size hole in my heart. It is not fair to put my kids and my wife in a position on this pedestal that only God deserves to be in. Right? So when stuff eludes us, though, it crushes us because we think that, that that's the thing that I need the most. The other thing that can happen is that you do accomplish a lot. Stuff doesn't elude you. You actually get this stuff. But then when you get this stuff, the same feeling comes. It doesn't fulfill you again. Let me read something from Jim Carrey uh, in his Golden Globes speech in 2016. And Jim Carrey said, thank you. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. And when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't dream any old dream. No, sir, I dream of being three-time Golden Globe-winning actor Jim Carrey because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I can stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. From our perspective, this is huge. Here is a person, and this is where it's so important to tell these kinds of stories, that accomplished so much in life. And yet, because he made a secondary calling, his primary calling in life, and got the order reversed, it left him longing still. Okay? I love my job. I love being a pastor. But you know what? My primary calling in life is not to be faithful to pastoral ministry. My primary calling in life is to be faithful to Jesus, okay? So if I enter a three-quarter life crisis and I wanna leave pastoral ministry to become a high school basketball coach, you know what, from God's perspective, that's okay because my primary calling is not to be faithful to pastoral ministry. I'm still gonna be doing ministry, just because I don't do pastoral ministry, you think I'm going to stop doing ministry? No. 
because my primary calling is to reflect Jesus. If, if I want to leave pastoral ministry and pursue my dream to become a B-list actor, I hope that you would be okay with that. Because my primary calling is not to be faithful to this job so much as it is to be faithful to Jesus. And I would say the same thing for you. We have to keep our primary calling primary and our secondary callings secondary. So what does it look like to be faithful then in our primary calling? Look with me again at verse 1. And Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have received or been called. It's interesting to me that in the Bible, oftentimes it refers to our relationship with God as like a walk. So it says that Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Micah 6.8, it says, do justice, uh, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Over and over, Scripture talks about our relationship with God as like a kind of walk. And how are we to walk with God? The way that we walk with God is in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have received. Now, let me flesh this uh, word out worthy for a moment. So in the 90s, um, I don't think people do this anymore, but in the 90s, a lot of uh, Christians used to put like a fish logo on their car. I don't think people do that anymore, but this is what we did. Um, I remember my, one of my good friends, the craziest driver that I know, like cuts people off, like, <laughs> I don't know how many speeding tickets he's gotten. One time he and Pastor Gene were in a car and he flipped the car over. They were hanging upside down. <laughs> like, that could go on and on actually, stories of helicopters flying above him and like crazy stuff. And one of the things that he would say is, you know, Aaron, I, I would never put a fish on my car. The reason for that is because everyone's going to associate my driving with my faith. And I don't want to give God a bad reputation or Christians a bad reputation. But here's what my friend understood. He understood that there is a direct correlation between how he lives and what he believes. Whether you realize it or not, you are representatives of Jesus Christ. And your conduct has to match what you believe. It cannot mismatch. It has to match what you believe. That's what it means to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel to which you have been called. So what that means is that when you go to a wedding, okay, people were plastered at my wedding, okay? But when you go to a wedding, it is okay to drink. It is not okay to get drunk, just in case that was ambiguous. Scripture says to be filled with the Spirit, not with wine. And I intentionally talked about how Oz Guinness's great-grandparents were the founder of Guinness. I intentionally talk about how much I love scotch and cigars. But it is not okay to lose self-control because you are not acting in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Anytime we gossip, talk someone behind someone's back, anytime we think that we're better than other people, anytime we don't check in with other people, anytime we're practicing gluttony, the list goes on and on and on of ways that we do not act in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. But based upon how you are living today, can I ask you this? Is there a match 
between what you believe and how you live? Or is there a mismatch? Would people say of you that you do walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, or would people say of you, you actually don't walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? If we're going to fix this hip- hypocrisy argument, what we, how we live and what we believe has to match more and more and more. And two of the ways that we can learn to match how we live better are to have the posture of a prisoner and the posture of a student. Okay, so if you take a look at verse 1 yet again, the Apostle Paul writes that, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. This phrase, prisoner for the Lord, has a double meaning. On the one hand, he is literally a prisoner to the Romans. He's writing this letter from house arrest in Rome. On the other hand, notice that he doesn't say that he's a prisoner for the Romans, but he writes that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And what is a prisoner? A prisoner is someone that has lost their freedom and independence. And when Paul says that he is a prisoner for the Lord, what he's saying is this, I've lost my right to live any way that I want to live. I've lost my independence. I've lost my autonomy. But what the Apostle Paul understood is that by losing his freedom as a prisoner for the Lord, he was actually gaining his freedom. And he was gaining more independence. And he was gaining clarity on how to live his life. This is why he says, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live any way that I want to live. But Christ lives in me. Having a posture of a prisoner says, God, whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, I will obey. Having a posture of a prisoner says, not my will, but your will be done. Having a posture of a prisoner is not bending God's will to my will, but it is bending my will to God's will. Having a posture of a prisoner understands that God doesn't exist for me, but I actually exist for him. Having a posture of a prisoner says, God, I will obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. I'm not gonna obey delayed, I'm not gonna obey halfway, and I'm not gonna obey with a grumpy heart, but I'm gonna obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. The Apostle Paul understood that. He was a prisoner for the Lord. The second thing, second way that we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is not only by surrendering our life and having a posture of a prisoner, but also having the posture of a student. Let me read something from Jonathan Haidt. A little bit long, okay, so stay with me. Psychologist at NYU, some of you actually may have had Haidt. Secular Jew, brilliant thinker, very sympathetic to Christianity though. And in his really seminal book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Haidt writes this, and this is actually my, my hope and prayer for each one of us here too. But Haidt writes, From time to time, in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time 
so that you don't take friends for granted anymore. And when you lose, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you'll have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. And as a pastor, that is my hope and prayer for every one of us, that we would not only learn to have a posture of a prisoner, but we would also learn to have a posture of a student in the school of hard knocks. My hope and prayer for you is not to have a cushy and comfortable life, but my hope and prayer is that as you experience suffering, that you will learn how to steward those sufferings well. The theologian Ronald Rollheiser once said that um, if we don't learn, when we experience hurt and pain, if we don't learn how to transform that pain, what will end up happening is that we will transmit that pain to other people. So all of us are gonna experience pain in life, but my hope is that instead of transmitting that pain to other people that we receive, because hurt people hurt people, my hope is that we will transform that pain, right? So if you, someone broke your trust, my hope is that you don't transmit that distrust to other people. Like, someone betrayed me, I don't trust anyone anymore. That's transmitting. My hope is that when someone breaks your trust, you will learn how to transform that trust uh, into others, uh, to other people. So this is how you walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Posture of a student, posture of a prisoner, and that will help the disequilibrium that we oftentimes feel. And when you do that, your secondary calling actually gets a lot more clearer. In verse 7 and 8, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Prior to verse 7, if you take a look at your bulletin again, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about oneness. We have one faith, one baptism, one Lord. So he talks a lot about sameness, the sameness and unity that we have. But in verse 7 and 8, he actually talks about how we're not the same, how we actually have different gifts that God has given to us. And the grace that Paul is talking about here is not a saving grace so much as different ministries of grace or gifts uh, that all of us have. And I think one way of clarifying your giftings more and more are with some itties, okay? As you think about your gifts and think about your secondary calling in life, some of these itties help. So for example, here's three itties. Do you have the ability to do that thing? Do you have an affinity to do that thing, a passion, right? So if you don't have the ability, you probably shouldn't do it. If you don't have an affinity, you probably shouldn't do it either, right? And lastly, is there an opportunity, right? When those three spheres align, there's that sweet spot called calling, right? And the thing about this sweet spot is that it's constantly moving because your abilities change, your affinities change, your opportunities change. And this is where it's constantly a moving target. And so constant reflection is very helpful. Do you have an internal call? Do you feel that burning in here? Do you have an external call? Can other people affirm that fire that's in there? And then is there a formal call, right? 
These are all different ways as you think about the giftings and how God has hardwired you that you can begin to dive into your secondary calling. I like what Paul Sohn says um, in his book, Quarter Life, Christ, uh, Quarter Life Calling, which is very helpful and which I'm borrowing a lot of stuff from, but he talks about uh, your personality, your passion, your gifts, and your life experience. And when your personality, passion, gifts, and life experiences merge together, there's sort of this sweet spot where you can figure out more and more what your calling is. And the tricky thing is, it's constantly moving around. But as you, as you think about your life experiences, your gifts, and your callings and opportunities, the one thing that is so important to remember is that as you pursue your secondary callings, it is not just for yourself, but it is primarily for other people. And I say that because as I think about our Lord, whose calling was to give his life as a ransom for many, and the greatest gift that God the Father has given to us is his son, we have to have the same posture. Our secondary calling is not just for our own portfolios and resumes, but our secondary callings are truly for other people as well in service to other people. And I'll give you an example of this from, from this verse. When the phrase, uh, where, when Paul says, he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. This is a direct uh, reference from Psalm 68. If you look at Psalm 68, it's a war psalm. And it's about how when people are victorious in war in biblical times, they would take the spoils and give it to the people. Food, spices, money, cattle, right? Whenever they were victorious, they would give it to everyone else. And similarly, this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was also in a war with sin and death. And the fact that he ascended on high also implies that he descended below. And the reason why he descended below into the grave was to die for our sins because we do not act in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. I do not act in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. I don't walk straight, I walk crooked. And that's why he descended into the grave to die the death that we deserved. But the fact that he descended also means that he ascended. He rose again from the dead. And the spoils that he gives to us are not money or spices or cattle, but forgiveness eternal life forever and ever. And because Jesus gave his life away, that means that we are called to also give our lives away, to give our skill sets away, our passions and our secondary callings. And the reason why he did all that is because you were worth it. My wife and I, we saw the Mona Lisa uh, many years ago. Can you imagine if someone just spray painted green spray, spray paint all over it? I don't think anyone would be visiting uh, France anymore to go see the Mona Lisa if that were the case, right? Because it's not worthy anymore to visit. But when Jesus looks at us and how marred we are by our own sin, what he does is he wipes away that spray paint and how we have disfigured ourselves. Because when he looks at you, you're always worth it. No matter how crooked you walk, even if you don't walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, for him, you were worth it. And that's why he came to die. And that was his calling. And the more you understand that, you will also want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and to give up your life for others as well, not just for yourself. Let's pray together.
Lord, um, I know, um, especially with uh, the demographic of our church, that um, we are in this very fragile place where we are constantly trying to figure out what we're doing with our lives. And so it's my hope and prayer, first of all, that you would help us to be um, nimble with our calling, that just as, you know, you want multiple revenue streams, that we would also have multiple calling streams, that we would just try a lot of different things, we would take risks. But as we do all these things, um, that you would always help us to remember that our primary calling is primary. And that is actually what matters most. Help us to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called and to reflect you day to day. Help us to step out of our crisis and to step into our calling as followers of Jesus every day. In your name I pray, amen. All right, we're gonna transition to a time of